This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. I just give it about a C. That's CARP's Vice President of Advocacy, Susan Ang, on this week's federal budget. It doesn't have much on the big issues affecting Zoomers, but there are some tax changes that may impact you. Coming up, I'll be joined by Avery Schenfeld, Chief Economist of CIBC World Markets and CARP's Susan Ang. Do you crave potato chips? Maybe you're a bit addicted to cheesies or pretzels. Coming up, I'll talk to Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Moss about his new book with a title that says it all, Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's a staggering statistic. A new report says a third of people over 65 have Alzheimer's disease or another type of dementia when they die. The report from the Alzheimer's Association in the U.S. shows that even if dementia is not the cause of death, it can be the catalyst that speeds the decline from other illnesses. If you're taking a cholesterol-lowering drug, you'll be interested in this news. A new study suggests the use of potent versions of statins may raise the risk of kidney failure. Compared to low-dose statins, high-potency versions of the pills were linked to slightly elevated rates of acute kidney injury. The Canadian researchers say for every 1,700 people who used high-dose statins for 120 days one more person would likely develop kidney failure. That number may seem small, but remember, tens of millions of North Americans take these drugs. That's Chubby Checker with The Twist, one of 25 recordings selected this week for preservation in the National Recording Registry at the Library of Congress. Some of the other 2012 inductees include Simon and Garfunkel's Sounds of Silence, Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, the original cast recording of South Pacific, and the Bee Gees' Saturday Night Fever. Created in 2000, the National Recording Registry annually selects 25 recordings that are culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant and reflect the diversity and creativity of the American experience. And finally, one of Canada's favorite Zoomers, William Shatner, celebrated his 82nd birthday this Friday. Shatner's stage career began in the 1950s. Trained as a classical Shakespearean actor, he took part in many performances at the Stratford Festival. His breakout role came in 1966 when he became Captain James Tiberius Kirk of the USS Enterprise on Star Trek. From that point on, William Shatner was a household name. He went on to star in lead roles on the police drama T.J. Hooker and on Boston Legal. He's even had success as a singer. Rocket man burning out his fumes out here. 
At 82, Shatner is still going strong with numerous television appearances, most recently during the monologue at the Academy Awards. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We've had a couple of days to digest Thursday's federal budget. The consensus is there were only modest measures that will affect Zoomers. But there are some tax changes that could hit your efforts to save for retirement, as well as some programs that may help you stay in the workforce longer. To parse the details, we have Avery Shenfeld, chief economist at CIBC World Markets, and CARP's vice president of advocacy, Susan Ng. There was a lot more that could have been done. Uh, they touched upon a couple of things that we care about. For example, they dealt with a bit of a, a GST exemption for certain kinds of home care services, and they talked about palliative care training, and they talked about financial literacy. But on the ground, in terms of what you're going to feel starting tomorrow, there is very little to show for it. And what is also a problem is the missed opportunity here. When we're talking about retirement here, you're talking about security, access to home care, access to drugs. And none of that was really addressed. This wasn't a budget which really put a lot of new money into anything, in fact. So even if you read the highlights of the budget and the focus was on areas like skills training, even in that area, it was a reallocation of existing spending, really, rather than putting any new money from a government that really doesn't have a lot of room to put new money in. In fact, the focus of the budget was actually on closing some tax loopholes, uh, and continuing on spending restraint to get budget deficits down. Now, I, I want to talk about that skills training a bit. What is there for older workers? And uh, we can also expand that to what do we need for older workers, Avery? Well, I think most of the emphasis here is actually on, on younger workers, really. You know, as the finance minister described it to me when I met uh, in the pre-budget consultation, the issue he was really addressing was people who came up to him and said, my kid has just finished a BA and is working, you know, at the, at the grocery store. I did ask the officials when I was in the lockup, so how does this help older Canadians? And they said, well, they can apply too. But what they're not recognizing is there's already a structural bias against older workers. Older workers complain about not getting promotions, not getting training opportunities. So what's the likelihood when it's the employer that's going to be making the choice whether or not to choose to... Uh, train that employee versus another one, whether or not they're going to choose the older worker. The employers have to kick in money for this. Right. So the federal government is paying for part of it. The province is going to pay for part of it, but the employer has to pay. So an employer will also consider that to themselves, well, how many years am I going to have this worker? And there may be an additional bias, in fact, if anything, towards training people who have a, a longer career ahead of them. Now, let's get back to some of those tax changes, Avery. I mean, I know they will probably affect higher-income Zoomers more than others, but uh, what kind of a hit is here for people who are planning their retirement and planning their estates? Well, the largest tax change actually reflects mostly small business owners who have been able to use uh, a structure where they're paying themselves in dividends rather than in salary out of their company's income and actually ending up, as a result, paying lower taxes than they would have if they just paid themselves a paycheck. In effect, the budget closes what is really a loophole and will equalize the tax, so basically eliminate that. And that was actually, in terms of dollars, the biggest uh, single tax change. But some of the other ones relate to the use of trusts, for example, to lower taxes on uh, your heirs. 
Um, there were other uh, provisions aimed at, for example, closing the use of uh, certain insurance strategies, um, something called leveraged insured annuities and 10 aimed arrangements. I won't go into all the technical details. These were, again, specific types of investment vehicles whose main purpose was to lower your overall taxes on your investment income, and those are now gone. So what that means to the average investor who's looking at these kinds of vehicles, they're not available anymore. So all people are going to take out of this conversation, just like the income trusts, something that was useful to us for saving for our own retirement, not available. Well, again, this dividend thing, I think it is a big deal because what happens to a lot of people at a certain age, uh, you leave your corporate job, you're 55, you're 60, you often do not leave voluntarily. You have your settlement, you take that, you create your own business. And that business is essentially uh, your retirement savings and and you have a few tax advantages and that's that's what you have because you can't get a a job in a big corporation anymore. Well, they did do a couple things, just to be fair. Mm. Um, They also raised a lifetime capital gains exemption that small business owners get when they sell their business. That's not something that, uh, that you and I get on capital gains you earn on your investments, but it is something that a business owner or a farmer or a fisher gets uh, if they sell their business. So there, were, there was a little bit of a hand that giveth as opposed to just a hand uh, taking away. So remember that to the extent that the government raises money this way, that's money they don't have to raise by raising income taxes on everybody else. They actually expect to find $2 billion out of that uh, dividend tax credit change and then other uh, changes such as getting out the tax cheaters. They think they're going to get $4 billion a year out of these initiatives, which is a big surprise. And if they have known that they've had this you know, leakage all of this time, they might have gone after that instead of the OAS. Okay. Uh, Susan, final thought? Well, I think that there was an opportunity missed here. The budget had the opportunity to set the hopes and aspirations for a lot of people who are facing difficult financial times for themselves and for their children. And as far as retirement security is concerned, we saw nothing positive in the budget. Okay. Avery Schenfeld, Susan Eng, thank you so much. You're welcome. My advice to paraphrase that old sop, take two aspirins and call your accountant in the morning. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. If you're like the average American, you eat 33 pounds of cheese and 70 pounds of sugar every year. Why? In just a moment, I'll be joined by Michael Moss, author of Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Did you know that food scientists use sophisticated technology to calculate the bliss point of sugar-laden drinks? That's the exact amount that will make you drink more. And they enhance what they call the mouthfeel of fatty foods, so you can't stop before you've eaten the whole pack. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Moss takes us inside the world of processed food in salt, sugar, fat, how the food giants hooked us. He joins me now. They're companies making a product, and they want to make it as utterly appealing and irresistible as they possibly can. They have on staff some of the brightest food scientists there are working, toiling away, you know, with research that shows that when they hit the right amounts of these three ingredients, they'll send us over the moon and their products will fly off the shelves and 
will buy more and will eat more, and they being companies, will they'll make more money. Now, you call that, that special amount sort of a sweet spot. Yeah, so with sugar, a legend in the industry named Howard Moskowitz helped coin the term bliss point, and he walked me through his recent creation of a new soda for Dr. Pepper in which he took 61 slightly different variations on sweetness and subjected those to 3,000-plus consumer tastings and then took the data and applied high math to it and picked the very perfect one. And he explained to me our liking for sugar is sort of a bell-shaped curve where the bliss point is at the top. And if you add too much sugar, then people will like it less. How do they combine the three ingredients to make us crave them? Fat actually doesn't have much of a bliss point ceiling. If there is a limit for our liking for fat, it's up in, say, heavy cream someplace, if you think about the appeal of cream. And, and by the way, the fat, the terminology is mouthfeel, because there isn't even a taste for fat. It's the, way, it's the warm, gooey sensation of eating a toasted cheese sandwich. But they've also learned that if you add just a little bit of sugar to fat, you'll like it even more, and you're less apt to get a signal from the brain saying, hey, slow down here. We're eating too much fat This because this is loaded in calories. Personally, I love potato chips. Yes. What's so fascinating about them is that you know, it starts with the salt on the surface, which the industry calls the flavor burst. And that also hits your tongue, hits the saliva, races to the brain, and sends a signal saying, eat. And then there's the fat. You know, chips are soaked in fat. Yep. And you get the mouthfeel from that. But what I didn't know, and this goes back to the old slogan at Frito-Lay, bet you can't eat just one. Potato chips are also loaded in sugar, not added sugar, but the starch itself, being a very simple starch, gets converted to sugar starting the instant it hits your tongue. So you're getting all three, the whole holy grail, (laughs) acting together to encourage you to eat more. So let's talk about salt. It's now been identified as a really big health hazard. Mm -hmm. People eat way more than the recommended mm-hmm. daily uh, maximum, mm-hmm. and it all comes from processed food. Two so- surprising things that really grabbed me. One, we're not born liking salt like we're born liking sugar and fat. We start to develop a liking at about six months of age, and recent research suggests that the processed food industry is hugely influential in shaping our liking for um, salt. It just takes maybe six weeks of not eating salty processed foods to really lower your threshold for salt. While we are and can get hooked on salt, the industry is incredibly hooked on salt because it's a miracle ingredient for them. It's so inexpensive. A, it acts as like a preservative. B, it helps to cover up these sort of off notes that you will find in, in many processed foods. I found that fascinating. Yeah. Kellogg invited me in the taste of um, a few of their icons that they had specially prepared for me without salt to show me why they're having so much trouble reducing the salt in their food. And we started with the Cheez-It crackers, which I could normally eat all day, and we couldn't even swallow those. They stuck to the roof of my mouth because without salt, they sort of lack the texture and solubility. And then we moved to the, the frozen waffles, and they looked and tasted like straw without salt. 
One of the key things in your book is when you recount this uh, kind of very secretive meeting of the Mm -hmm. food executives where they had the chance to do the right thing back in 1999 but did not. Yeah, they gathered some of the CEOs of some of the largest companies for a rare meeting. And what was stunning about it is that one of their own got up, a, a senior executive at Kraft, and essentially laid responsibility for the obesity crisis at their feet and pleaded with them to collectively do something to turn the corner and, and as you say, do the right thing by consumers. The CEOs reacted defensively. Um, The head of General Mills argued, look, we think we're already being responsible and we're going to push forward and continue in the strategy we are. And and the craft official was usually disappointed. So does the obesity epidemic just continue? Well, no, because I'm actually very hopeful that it will be curbed, again, through consumers voicing their concerns louder, government figuring out ways to intervene without going, you know, crazy and and getting accused of being a nanny state, Um, and maybe some of these companies turning to their most brilliant scientists and you know, spending the money to innovate new products that can be both tasty and really, truly healthy. (laughs) Well, we'll call you back and have a chat about that Uh, when it happens. It's a deal. Okay, thank you so much, Michael Moss. Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us is published by Signal Books. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Oh, the times they are changing That's the music of Bob Dylan. This week marked the anniversary of his debut album. In just a moment, we'll return to tell you more. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Brought to you by Chartwell Seniors Housing, making people's lives better. Welcome back to the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time now for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Scott Walker. We begin in New York City, where the assembled party stars 80s TV favorite Judith Light. Director Lynn Meadows explains it's a play about a Jewish family living on the Upper West Side. Really, it's a portrait of what happens to this family and to a guest whom they've invited. The Assembled Parties is in preview at the Samuel J. Friedman Theater. In Los Angeles, see Johannes Vermeer's famous painting from the 1660s called Woman in Blue Reading a Letter. It's at the J. Paul Getty Museum on loan from Amsterdam's Rijksmuseum. It's there until the end of March. To London, England, Charles Dickens' Great Expectations is in the West End for the first time. It's at the Vaudeville Theatre till the end of March. And in Russia, Breaking the Ice, Moscow Art 1960s through the 80s is at the Saatchi Gallery. That's your International Arts Date Book. I'm Scott Walker. This week marked an important anniversary for Bob Dylan. 51 years ago, on March 19, 1962, his debut album was released. He was discovered by John Hammond of Columbia Records, the same executive responsible for discovering Billie Holiday and many other jazz legends. He met Bob Dylan at a jam in a Greenwich Village apartment. The story goes that Dylan picked up the harmonica, started playing and captured the attention of the entire room. A short while later, he performed a set at Goethe's Folk City and earned a rave review from the New York Times. At that point, John Hammond signed Dylan to a five-year contract. 
Dylan's first album was recorded in just three short afternoon sessions in November 1961. The music, mainly traditional folk songs, was a huge departure from the popular dance craze that was sweeping America at the time. He covered folk classics like Man of Constant Sorrow and In My Time of Dying. The end result was an album that wasn't that successful. Reviews were lukewarm and sales were poor. However, Hammond was willing to take a second chance on Dylan and the two started work on his second album just a few months later. For the first session, Dylan brought a song he had written and was performing in his live shows. It would go on to change his life and make him both a political and cultural icon. Here it is, Blowing in the Wind. How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must the white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind Yes, and how many years can a mountain exist Before it is washed to the sea Yes, and how many years can some people exist Before they're allowed to be free Yes, and how many times can a man turn his head And pretend that he just doesn't see the answer my friend is blowing in the wind the answer is blowing in the wind that was bob dylan with blowing in the wind 51 years ago this week, Dylan kicked off his career with the release of his first album, Bob Dylan. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Jane Brown will be hosting the program next week, and to mark Easter Sunday, she'll bring you the story of a Zoomer who found religion later in life. You've been listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Knight. Produced by Paul Thomas. Program director, John Van Driel. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on AM 740 Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network. Home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.